Hi, I'm Ricky Duriz and welcome to the Mind That Ego podcast. I'm joined by Dr. Leanne Whitney. Uh, Leanne is an independent scholar in the fields of depth psychology and consciousness studies. Leanne works as a transformational coach, yoga teacher and documentary filmmaker. For over 25 years, she has researched the mind-body connection and over the last 15 years plus, they're in... Um, their interrelation with pure consciousness. I can't even read my own handwriting. It's the first time I've done a live introduction, so there you go. Um, Leanne specializes in the intersection of Western psychology and Eastern wisdom. She is the author of numerous published papers, as well as the book Consciousness in Young and Patanjali, which will be the topic of today's discussion. Welcome, Leanne. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. It's really, um, I loved your book. I loved your book. And I was really impressed by the mind mapping capability of, of bringing together these two really influential and, and, and quite um, defining bodies of work. I'd like to begin by exploring how did you become interested in depth psychology and in particular linking that to Eastern wisdom? Uh, great question. So let's go back a couple decades here. Um, I began meditating and practicing yoga uh, around 1998. And it was sporadic then, but I started a basically six day a week practice in January of 2000. And I hadn't yet read any of the underlying philosophies it, I was just doing the asana and a bit of meditating, but really didn't know the systems out of which these practices arose. Um, but in about July of 2000, I had what is known in the religious studies literature as a pure consciousness event. It lasted but a fraction of a second, but it, uh, I mean, it radically altered my worldview. Um, so that started me on the course to... Uh, read about soul and spirit and mind and all manner of things. I started reading a book a week uh, after that, and I did for like four years straight. Um, but it, not too long after that, uh, my best friend who lives in England, her company knew of Young and was highly influenced by Young's work. And she handed me a copy of Memories, Dreams, Reflections. She said, I really think you're going to enjoy this. And that was it. I yeah. was hooked. I could tell that Jung had had these, you know, deep spiritual experiences. And um, yeah, from there on, I, I started reading him. And of course, I was in a yoga asana room at the, at the time of the event. And um, so I kept delving into yoga from that point on, too. And then just after years of reading the yogic texts and depth psychological texts, that's where I started to really uh, refine it and see, hey, where are these, where are their similarities and where are their differences? And it, it sounds like your experience was leading the way as, as well as kind of gaining the knowledge. Was it your, your experience of this real shift in reality kind of led that that exploration um do you feel that when you were you were researching this you were comparing it to to your experience to kind of find a a point of reference 
Oh, yes, I definitely was um, trying to see for sure. Well, again, Young was like a solve to me. It was mm. like uh, because he was, you know, European and obviously us in America, we have lots of European uh, backgrounds and me in particular. So th there was some kind of, um, yeah, like I'm saying, solve to, to read mm -hmm. him and read his struggles and, and, and read all his contemplations. Mm -hmm. um, but yoga for sure. Um, Patanjali's text really drew me in just to, because pure consciousness is spoken about through the yogic tradition, whereas it isn't spoken about in the Jungian tradition. He speaks of conscious and unconscious, but he never speaks to pure consciousness. So it was really the, the Orthodox Hindu traditions that had really grabbed me and could really speak to my own personal experience for sure. So I, I'm, I'm conscious with, with this, um, with this discussion of creating a, a enough structure around the the richness of your book and, and, and the way that you've brought this together, um, I'd like to to maybe begin with for those for people not so familiar with the work of, of Patanjali and Jung, could you give a, a brief overview of their their area of work um, as brief as is possible anyway <laughs> within that kind of confined but. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Young's body of work is, is so vast. And right. in, in the end, he never uh, really honed it in and made any you know, many things too concise because for him, ultimately, he didn't want to sort of put a specific name to the psyche, so to speak. He wanted it to be able to flourish, which is a, a, a beautiful thing, but then doesn't end up giving us a concise idea. Mm. But um what I can say is his process of individuation, which is the process of bringing unconscious contents into consciousness in order for one to experience wholeness. So that's um, in the, the practices of doing that are dream tending, active imagination, um, you know, painting, dancing, mm -hmm. just to give uh a language, so to speak, to things about ourselves that we don't know, whether they be positive or negative, in order to be able to reflect on them and integrate them and, and merge them so one can experience one's power and wholeness <clears throat> in a uh, different way. Definitely, he was after the healing of human suffering. In the end, he did not feel that that was possible. So that there is there that's one of the areas of differences for sure between Young and Patanjali. Um, he felt that human suffering would always remain, but his process of individuation uh, and wholeness, therefore, definitely aimed towards the healing of human suffering. So that that that's Young and yeah. <laughs> in in a small <laughs> nutshell as you can get. <laughs> yeah, exactly the elevator pitch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then Patanjali, again, also healing of human suffering. But in that system of thought, it is possible. That's not to say that we wouldn't ever have pain, per se, like if you stub your toe or, mm -hmm. you know, you, mm -hmm. you walk into a hard boundary. But the suffering can heal because now, again, one of the core differences between the two is Patanjali's whole system of thought is rooted in this pure consciousness. So for him consciousness is all there is and mm -hmm. knowledge is structured in it so we have 
positive and negative affects that are coding towards the alignment into mm -hmm. pure consciousness. And when one is able to learn the language of one's, now again, what Jung would call the unconscious, Patanjali wouldn't use that term. He would use it, he has a term called avidya, so misunderstanding. So when we get in touch with our own language, our own inner world, and really understand it, we can begin to interpret it differently in order to integrate that phenomena so suffering can be eradicated and we can take a comfortable seat in the body on the earth plane so so this is a key distinction isn't it the the idea of in in Jungian terms as you say the this path of wholeness doesn't eradicate that the, the, that second point i think of the, the buddhist term of the the double pointed arrow um or sorry the two pointed arrow the double pointed arrow is uh, Gurdjieff, but in Buddhism, this idea of separating pain from suffering is in the, the, the first arrow is the pain. The second arrow is the storyline. It's the ego. It's the, the ways in which we kind of create extra. Um, so we have that element. And, and as well, what I was struck by was the, the, the way in which you, you could conceptualize the very nuanced distinction between where Jungian philosophy fits in that non-dual narrative. Um, and that is, oh, there are so many places we can go, Leanne, with it. <laughs> oh, my brain is just like working overtime. Like, like, where's this map? How do, like, where do we begin? Because it is so intricate. And part of me really wants to go into these, these intricate nuances um, and, and to follow that. But keeping with this idea of, of, eradicating suffering so Jung worked with, with as you say what he would call the unconscious through symbol through dream interpretation to to make unconscious content conscious would you say that's a, a fair way of, of describing that absolutely again and like the one sentence if that's how, you know that's a great way to describe Jung is to make yeah. unconscious contents conscious yes so we have, and this is something as, as well, I think for people listening that this idea of depth psychology really talks to just how much exists in the psyche outside of our awareness. So Jung really penetrated this unconscious element in a way that was kind of shamanic almost. It, it feels that it, it, he was able to enter this dimension and work with it. So we have that kind of Jungian angle. Patanjali... Now, there's, there's the, the, the idea that you talk to of um, what Patanjali talks to of, of Sam, Sam's car, Samkara's. So the right, the right Samskara, phrase? Sam, mm -hmm. Samskara. Samskara, the imprints, yeah. And getting to the root of that. Could you talk to that kind of distinction of getting to the root of suffering and what the process would be um, from, a, from a Jungian, I guess an attempt from a Jungian point of view, and then Patanjali as well? Right. So now... One of the key things that I do show in that research and in the book is that where Patanjali ends up being really strong is his ability to keep epistemology and ontology in two different categories. I know those are big words, but epistemology is the study of knowledge mm -hmm. and ontology, the study of being, the reality mm -hmm. of being. So, and again, because that Orthodox Hindu system of thought consciousness is all there is and knowledge is structured in it right we want to just get into alignment with that and mm. and surrender into it really and be informed by it right 
Now, for Jung, he doesn't speak to pure consciousness. He speaks to the collective unconscious, which to him, this is where Jung gets really complex. And again, if I could just mention here, Jung has such a vast body of work, right? The collective works in and of itself, I think, has 18 volumes, not to mention other papers that you know were published um, in different books, potentially has 195 lines of text. I mean, right there, that yeah. potentially was able to really distill. Potentially came along after the Upanishads had been written, after Buddhism had already been flourishing. So he basically distilled systems of thought into 195 mm -hmm. lines, whereas Jung is really writing through all of his research. Mm -hmm. So, um, sorry, that was a side note, but his, so his collective unconscious, um, and rightly so, he says, you know, you'll never get to the bottom of it because for him, it's all phenomenological, right? He's looking at the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, this is one of the things I say in my book and, you know, there's a truth to that, right? Whether you take a microscope or telescope, Whatever yes, direction yeah. you want to look with your lens, the, the yeah. phenomenon is going to get smaller or it's going to get bigger. Yeah. And then you just have to grapple with how to place yourself within it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we end up with Jungian psychology is with this immense amount of phenomena because you, you'll never get to the bottom of it. And again, that, 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 while there is a truth in that, what Patanjali is saying is at, at some point you realize in that grappling that the positive and negative affects are coding for your balance within the enormity of Prakriti, the physical world. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're looking for. You're going to find that balance. You're going to get into your window of tolerance. You're going to get into flow. And once you're in flow, now you're living yoga. Yeah. Like yoga practice becomes yoga. Mm -hmm. One is in, in, in union. So, again, because Patanjali has the pure consciousness with knowledge structured in it, one is able to really surrender into the field. For young, human beings are making God conscious. And that's an enormous task yeah. that, that we as a species would be making God conscious, yeah. right? And bringing light to what he says is mere being. Like mm -hmm. we're bringing light into the darkness. So he left us with an enormous task. For potentially, he, he, if, if I could just say, if these two gentlemen were sitting in a room dialoguing, uh, you know, that you don't want to go there because it's too egoic. Mm. And again, Jung's consciousness only relates to an ego, that human beings have consciousness, whereas mm -hmm. like dolphins don't, whereas mm. potentially would no, the whole thing is conscious. All of the phenomenal world is conscious. So does that, did that get to the heart of what you were asking? Yeah. Now I've got like a million other questions that I want to ask. <laughs> so I'll try and, and use my structured brain. I really liked, I, I think it was a really um, important tangent that, that you made actually about the, the difference in volume of these teachings and, and of these descriptions, because as you said, the, yeah, it, it really, it does reflect this, this metaphor that you use of scale. Uh, and the idea that the more you zoom in or the more you zoom out, there will be content and that you can get caught in that house of mirrors almost if you're always chasing insight, if you're always chasing from within the content. And with Patanjali, there's this, we, we talk to the worldview, right? Or like the, the reality, 
but but a reality that doesn't really fit the the mainstream materialistic worldview and i guess that is part of the issue is that and i think you, you mentioned this in the book if you if you go through a process of surrender you have to to have a sense of what you're surrendering to and if your worldview doesn't present anything in the sense of a universal consciousness then it's difficult to to go through that process and and within that and and what i really like something that really stood out in your book um quite early on you, you talk about orientation a and orientation b and awareness in in that dynamic could you talk to that into and the reason i i, I want to focus on this is to create um clarity around this idea of content versus awareness or, or orientation a and ori- orientation b as, as you define it yeah so that I called it orientation A and orientation B after reading Patanjali's Yoga Sutras numerous times. And his first four sutras really distill his whole message um, where he says, well, first of all, the, the first sutra is now we have this exposition of yoga. Yoga is the stilling of the mind stuff. And that thereupon pure consciousness will be established in its true nature at all other times, the mind will be moving. So pure consciousness established in its true nature is orientation B, the movement of the mind grappling around phenomena, orientation B. I'm sorry. Yeah. So orientation A is pure (laughs) consciousness in its true nature, orientation B, the moving of the mind. Um, And another little side note here is, so the second sutra, yoga is the stilling of the mind stuff. Young mentioned in Young's now, again, vast 18 volumes and then some. He only mentioned silence three times mm. and never in reference to his own work. Mm-hmm. Patanjali comes out of the gate in yeah. the second sutra and says the stilling of the mind is the thing you want to aim for. So again, that just points to how Young was continued to grapple with those contents and fold them in and integrate, right? Mm. So that's another key area to show the difference between them. Um, So with orientation A, pure consciousness established in its own true nature. Now, um, in Euro-American culture, we don't have clear definitions of consciousness or awareness, Mm -hmm. or mind and emotions for that matter. We we have some pretty big (laughs) terms representing, um, you know, and we don't have, if you ask a neuroscientist and a psychologist, you know, a quantum physicist, nobody's going to agree on these terms. I use the term awareness at the human level, our human awareness, just as a one way for me to keep those categories Um, a little bit more distinct. So Mm. pure consciousness is the ontic reality of our being. And then because we're mostly going to become aware of the phenomena, right? You know, for people who have, like I did a pure consciousness event or, or, or something that radically alters the perception of the Western mind. Yeah. um, Yeah. Pure consciousness can be really hard to understand. And a lot of people, have a lot of, um, I don't want to say baggage, but weight attached to the word pure because of, you know, the Abrahamic religions. So people Mm. hear the word pure and they bristle, but pure really just means it sits inside itself. It's pure Mm. in and of itself. It's, it's of its own. It's absolute. 
in and of itself. Yeah. So, so there's nothing other than it. Yeah. And I, and I, I like it as well with it, the distinction between these orientations and what you say is it's hard to understand without the experience. And, and I think that can make it really difficult without the contrast to understand like a term, like for people that I know who are more in, into um, working, like doing inner work and, and, and working with consciousness, we'll talk of like terms such as constriction and expansion and having clear experiences where you can say, oh, I was expansive and I was witnessing the content of mind. And then I got caught up in it. Uh, and I find like personally, my, my path is, led to more expansion over time, like periods where I'm convinced I'm going to be expanded forever. And then something happens and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm reactive and I'm really caught in the, in the contents. And then these indescribable, and you say, you say this in the book, but it's indescribable to, to really use language and use the conceptual to explain awareness, to explain kind of oneness experiences. Um, but this contrast it is, is something you can anchor into almost and then use that as like a a, a different uh, vantage point in the, the path of healing, uh, I guess. Yes, that's why I love, the, I think Patanjali is a genius is that he does speak to so many practices, you know, within his theory. His book is really 195 lines with mm. many, many different practices because to me it, it um, allows people to move towards, I, I want to hold these terms gently, right? Because the, the irony of this is the wholeness and the pure consciousness of what we already are. Mm. Right. But there are like Tibetan Buddhist traditions that don't encourage meditation because they feel like it's going to push people away from their true nature. Mm-hmm. I'm not in that camp. I'm in Patanjali's camp. I'm like, people are suffering. Like just give them some tools, give them some practices in order to alleviate that suffering. And that's what, that's what he really does. So, but but I like what you, you said a minute ago, your point around, yeah, but if you don't have the pure consciousness event and it's actually not in the canon of your philosophical system which it Mm -hmm. isn't then Mm -hmm. how do you trust it how do you have faith in it how could you even take a step into patanjali's camp because you neither have the personal experience and your whole culture is speaking against it in a way you know it's more like the exotic asian thing as Mm -hmm. opposed to actually being seen on its own terms Mm -hmm. So um, I hear that argument, you know, big time like that or that concern, I should say Mm -hmm. that, boy, you know, if you're not inside the tradition and you don't have these experiences, how would one have the faith to surrender that this field even is conscious? Yeah. But little by little, as we do the practices and we meditate and the whole point of meditation is to cultivate the witness Mm-hmm. You, you know, to cultivate mm-hmm. the witness. And as the witness gets cultivated over time, you become more and more clear about the movements that the yeah. mind is making, about the movements of the emotions within the internal world. And it just, that's it. You just keep following it. And and each time there's a bit of a breakthrough, to me, it gives you more courage to continue on with the practices. 
yeah it, it gives it gives as well as an orientation a different you know point of grounding almost like you're not grounding in and you know there's this whole kind of um other ethos of, of relinquishing attachment to the external and the way in which we always look out into the world for fulfillment or, or to soothe our suffering and these practices allow us to to return as as young you you know as young did as well it's like returning being introspective and and looking to understand and explore through through that lens um with so i i want to talk to this idea and like honestly leanne so many <laughs> so many different like areas we can, we can go into but one is, is present in me now. I'm trying to I'm trying to bring this like structured approach to this. I'm realizing that it's just going to flow. It's going to flow wherever it goes, right? But when you were talking then about how, because this is something that I I really like. It's really close to my heart. This idea of when you've you've experienced this different orientation point, when you have the contrast, and it's like, wow, this this is it, and it completely shifts your reality. Even if you go back, it shifts your perception and, and just the way that you perceive yourself and the world and, and, and the cosmos. When you experience that, it, it can, I find it can be difficult communicating it in, in one way, but also there can be a real desire for other people to, 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 to experience that. Like people you love, like you, you want people to, to have that contrast and to have that understanding. And this is one area that I feel Young can help in that his theories around synchronicity, for example, and looking at the the quantum reality. Like for me, I, I'm a, I'm aware as as well. Like I, I my mind, I can re, I can conceptualize incessantly. I, I can go down the the intellectual route. I can look at the science. I can stay in content, and I have to remind myself to be purposeful. And, and the purpose I find is that Young. It's almost as if you can you can provide something that is tangible to the Western intellect to get people on board. Like you can you can look at what Jung has achieved as almost a stepping board to to non-duality. Um, so I, I I would like to, to from that to form a question that you can respond to. <laughs> um, how how would you view that? Like how how would you view experiences of synchronicity? And I, I use the term enchantment a lot in, in what I share. And this feeling of, uh, the, like the Ernest Mundus, like there's an underlying reality that isn't non-duality as such, isn't isn't pure awareness or pure consciousness, but it has this enticing quality to it. If that makes sense, how, how do you see that linking together, like Jung and Patanjali, this idea of what it can teach about the nature of reality, maybe as a stepping stone to surrender into to pure consciousness oh god i love that question let me let me do my best here <laughs> um so orientation a and orientation b may seem radically different pure consciousness sitting in its own true nature otherwise consciousness you know moving with the contents right mm -hmm. They are in sync. Even when we're suffering, that's, that's why pulling in the projections or it's like the fine peeling layers of an onion. It's like 
it's figuring out what the symbol is. So the symbols aren't just in our mythologies. They're actually the very things that we're living in the front of our eyes. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The thing that's happening in the body and in the front of our eyes is 100% in sync with Mm. the thought forms in the binds that are also in the psyche. So again, it's like a bit by bit. One doesn't really have to have these big pure awareness experiences. Again, we're back to this trust issue and not doubting, mm. you know, the the worldview that we're putting forward here. But um, it's kind of almost like maybe like a surfer getting up to ride a wave or somebody who's going to mount a horse. It's like when you get in sync enough, and that's all you need yeah. is enough. Yeah. And then you continue the cadence mm-hmm. of riding that wave or that horse where you begin to understand, okay, suffering was a marker. It was a marker that mm-hmm. I was conceptualizing, objectifying, whether through my own device or because it was handed to me through the culture or through a family pattern. Mm-hmm. But that's all. It's like noticing what I I call the red flags. Like that's what suffering is. It's like offering us, um, yeah, red flags or, uh, what do you call that? Like on on a bowling Oh, like the bumper. Bowling alley. The bumper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The things that I need because I'm rubbish at bowling, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's what suffering is. It's to say, Hey, hold on. You're outside your window of tolerance. Yeah. You've either become too chaotic, too rigid, something like that, and you're in you're you're, you're in suffering. Come back into the yes. window. Use use your pranayama. Use your breathing techniques. Use your yoga asana. Go talk to a friend, somebody who can you know listen unconditionally and without mm-hmm. having to put judgment on it. Mm-hmm. Paint it out. You know, write it out, dance it out, but find a way to come back inside that window of tolerance. And then again, the more that that happens, then it's just like building a muscle. And then one realizes, oh, wow, this whole thing is completely in sync all the time, not just in special moments. And that's the thing that Jung was pointing to. He Mm -hmm. pointed towards synchronicity, um, which I I love as his theory. And it's one of the ways that I bridge Jung and Patanjali because Mm -hmm. Patanjali doesn't use the word synchronicity. I don't think the term was even coined until Jung came around, but... Mm -hmm. But um, Patanjali definitely speaks to the past, present, and future all being encapsulated in present tense. Yeah. So he, he speaks to it in a different way. Yeah. Okay. Right. First question. <laughs> because you said something that, sets, that, I, that I really like, which is this idea. So when, when reality is experienced as is, this overlapping of mind and matter so that life becomes symbolic and, and, and in a way that would defy, completely defy the, the typical Western worldview of, of materialism in that, like you say, these symbols are appearing in real time in front of our eyes as well as in our imagination in a way that can freak people out if they don't have that. Like for, for me, I'm at a stage where I'm, that's for me the enchantment. That's where I'm like, well, I, I can feel this guiding mechanism um, through that that overlap in a way that that adds almost I was don't want to say adds color to to the day to day, but it 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 does create that enchanted 
receptive curiosity towards um, reality. So that's, that's one aspect. I, I love that if we're able to, to tap into that contrast to, to, to understand there is no separation, then we view reality, the, the quote unquote external, the scene, the subject object in a very radically different way that reflects us and reflects the cosmos, right? So that was, that's just a thought uh, that, that comes from that. But then what I also love about what you shared is the fundamental aspect that there is a, a universal benevolent yearning to heal and yearning for wholeness. And it's actually quite, it's like this, this idea of effortless effort. Like if we get ourselves, if we get out of our own way and attuned to that, then healing can present itself. And then, and then we experience like these, quote unquote superior emotions this joy that, that and contentment and stillness um that can be really difficult so I, w- I want to talk to to how for a lot of people that can seem almost too too easy and one thing that I love and what my interest as well in bringing these together which is how I find your work just by, by searching for, for the link b- between the two in a way, like in my experience, like I get it, I get, I get the simplicity, I get the, the states that I experience that I'm able to grind into and, and I meditate and I can feel that stillness and increasingly have stillness and, and, and space around all emotions and all content and all thought forms. It does seem to me that there is still a, a real necessity in order to avoid that spiritual bypassing, for example, to almost take time to, to engage with content as well as aligning. So it's this kind of paradox of, yeah, if you align, you will heal, but at the same time, it might be necessary to engage. How do you view that as like a healing process or as a process of um, growth? How, how would you discern? When do I align? When do I engage and, and explore in that? Uh, oh, well, make no mistake, aligning and engaging to me for sure together, they're not necessarily uh, separate things because... And I love that you brought up spiritual bypass. It's always so important to to bring up that topic because that's exactly not what we're looking for. And that, and, you know, as we begin to do this work on a personal level, you know, then we start to see into family patterns and Mm -hmm. the intergenerational distress that gets handed down. But then we get to look into, we get, after you peel back those layers, or sometimes even while you're pe- peeling back those layers, you also see the cultural binds and the cultural distress. Mm-hmm. So there really is no bypass. If one is going to be mm-hmm. a planetary citizen, one has to take a comfortable seat inside the discomforts of the culture yes. and continue to be a voice and do you know what one should for according to one's dharma. Mm-hmm. You know, again, sometimes these things get challenging to talk about. Only that. Um, it does get to be very personal. People have their own dharma, particular dharma, I guess I should say, mm-hmm. not necessarily personal, you know, but a particular dharma. And and so um, just making, you know, very broad statements sometimes yeah. breaks down on a level for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't want, we're not looking for spiritual bypass. And the phenomena 
that need to be grappled with continue to show themselves. So you had used this idea of alignment. Yes. I would also say integration. Yes. You don't align without integrating. So the phenomena keep coming. So it's a both and. If one is going to sit for alignment in meditation to something that's silent, which I'm assuming you're pointing to, which is, okay, the silence, yes. But that's for, let's say, X period of time. And then, you know, because we're not like out in a hut or, you know, (laughs) you know, not separated from society overall. So one meditates, then goes to one's work or, you know, gets involved with one's children or partner. So the phenomena continuing to come forward. And then we notice, okay, where, again, when am I out of my window of tolerance? Where do I lose balance? And therefore, what is that? What's that edge right there? So we just work with a little bit of the phenomena at a time. It doesn't have to be so overwhelming. It can just be in my day-to-day. I meditate, then I, whoever I interact with at work or within my family, where do I stay inside my window of tolerance? Where am I in flow? Where am I in balance? Where do I fall out? And I want to start to look and get an in-depth knowledge of that area where I fall out of the window of tolerance or I lose flow. Almost as if the universe presents, like our reality presents us all the ways that can highlight our own suffering. And if we're able to view it, if we're able to, to look within when we're presented with that, that's where we can get to the root. And these things will come up. And then because of this understanding of one reality and, and this connection, the, the content is pointing to the same thing. And we just have to learn the language of it. And, and I like that you talk to emotions being systems, uh, uh, messages almost, and, and patternicity or this, this kind of pattern detection is a way that we can then understand I need to get to the root. And that's something that Jung wasn't able to do, right? Like to, to really get to, to the root, it's, it seems. So by my understanding then, it, it, would it be fair to say all of the like mythological and, and symbolic and the imaginal content through dreams, through synchronicity, through active imagination, they're almost like the finger pointing to the moon of suffering. And, and if you, if you learn, and I talk, I mean, with my personal experience, I find that I find if I can learn the, the language of, of the symbols and incorporate that with not getting completely caught in that reality, I can, I can have a better chance of, of getting to the root of suffering, uh, suffering and hopefully, you know, move to, without attachment, move towards liberation. Um, so it's almost like allowing the content to be informed by this universal principle of healing and, and remembrance of who we are almost. Right. Yes, absolutely. It is who we are. So, and again, this is where it happens on a personal level. Like you can read it in textbooks, but the, the experiential piece is really what carries the weight. Mm -hmm. So, um, and again, the, the comp, complexity here is the trust piece with the worldview of 
a wholeness or, you know, that my mm. center really does hold this energy of tolerance, of compassion, you know, for self, compassion for others that if we could just say, you know, love, that yeah. love is, is yeah. at my essence and that if I eradicate all fear, that's another frame that we could use, you know, just go to, I tell, I tell my clients, like the fears of the things that you don't want to actually be afraid of. You want to actually move towards your fear to see through the fear in order to, again, like pull the threads of what created that fear in the first case, mm. because fear in the binds of the mind involved in that fear keep us from experiencing the centeredness and the love and the interdependence with all humanity in the world. So um, I think I'm losing the thread of the answer to your question, but it's, it's again, in, in that idea of doing it personally yeah. and also um, I mean, again, Young does point to love. He, he speaks to it um, in many different ways. He looks at the Christian mystics. Um, but yeah, ultimately, he never, he never says that the phenomena in front of our eyes our consciousness itself, because again, to him, it's the, it's the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. So where Jung is really strong for Westerners or Euro Americans, because to me, it's like he was in the jungle with a machete, just yeah. like, come on, you know, we can do this. And, you know, he really took a stand for this idea of looking at these contents as fearlessly as he could yeah. for a man in his time, in his place. Right. And um, so as a role model to that, I think it's it's absolutely he's absolutely brilliant. Mm. Um, he, there is a footnote. I think it's in collected work eight might be on the nature of the psyche, I'm not sure, or the synchronicity paper, where he does say that, you know, if the mind and the soul or the body and soul end up being one thing, he would have to revise his theory of synchronicity. And again, that would fold him or, or bring him even closer to Patanjali, because that's exactly what Patanjali is saying. This whole thing is in sync. You yeah. want to pull back every projection you have out there because consciousness is all there is. And so in keeping with your point um, that you brought up earlier, what, what flashed in my head was this idea of the, a baby in its mother's womb, right? Mm. It's inside water. It's having this particular experience. And then it gets birthed into a completely new world, which has to do with gravity and oxygen. Mm -hmm. So we leave one mother only to stand or be inside the womb of another. Yeah. And that's where that exact match between Purusha and Prakriti fold in that fire, water, ether. Like we are inside the elements of mm -hmm. not even mother earth, but mother nature. Yeah. And we will find boundaries with all of those elements. But when you get to the heart of mother nature, and then again, 
you learn the language of human nature, these things are completely working in sync. Yeah. Like, just like you have boundaries inside the human birth mother, there are boundaries inside mother nature. It's just, it's just the way of it. It's the way that this phenomenal universal, what we got going on right here as we zoom through space. (laughs) And if you can accept that, then we, again, you can land on gravity really comfortably and take a seat mm-hmm. and breathe and be inside. The, the preposition breaks down. Be inside, be it. Yeah. Be it. Yeah. Be this phenomenal experience of property as a human being, you know, in this cosmos. And, um, yeah, it can be very a very comfortable experience, even though there's lots of discomfort as far mm-hmm. as the cultural stories go. Does that does that all make sense there? Yeah, my, yeah, and it's, it's profoundly beautiful. It's profoundly beautiful, and and this idea for uh, Stanislav Grof came to mind when you were talking about birth, um, and his work around the prenatal and the, like past life from a from a more conventional Western viewpoint, and the work he's done with like psychedelic research and holotropic breath work, um, and how that also points to yogic principles of breathing and, and um, this innate yearning for wholeness that if we align with nature, it's like we, we have that seed of wholeness and we move towards the sun if we allow ourselves to, but, but a lot of the time we stifle that through, through our own suffering, not intentionally, but that's, I guess how we, we deviate. Um, I, it also comes to mind. I think you, you touched, you, you I think you got, to this point where understanding all language to some degree is dualistic, that it's very difficult to, to explore these concepts just through that alone. Um, and how that can kind of create, if we become too, and we do this in the West a lot, like the, the rate at which we conceptualize the world. I feel like actually most of us now live 80% in the conceptual, even in our immediate surroundings, we've got a, a, a mental model of our reality that we're, if we don't have distance from our thought, we're living that model rather than the direct reality. Um, I need to take a breath myself and, and realize <laughs> because the one thing I really want to make sure that, that I want to ask you and, and something that I feel is really important is to explore that the Patanjali and Jung's description of the ego because I feel that we have a, a gross misconception of what the ego is and its function and I feel that a lot of the time when people talk of ego that they're, they're talking of egoic um, and they're overlooking maybe the complexity that Patanjali presented with his model of mind but also misinterpreting young as young made the link between what is conscious is ego and the rest is unconscious right so i'm wondering if you could create a maybe more a, a clearer distinction of the ego from a young Jungian point of view and patanjali and also the different um categories of mind in a way that might help people understand oh that's not actually ego this is if that makes sense. Let me, um, I'll give it my best shot here. So 
yes, for young consciousness relates to an ego. And I personally feel like that's one of the fundamental errors or points of concern in Jungian oriented depth psychology. Um, in the end, Jung's idea of consciousness is very conceptual and very linguistic. For Patanjali, consciousness is everything. Yes, it's conceptual, but it's non-conceptual. Mm. Yes, it's linguistic, but it's also non-linguistic because um, it's everything. Mm. So again, we just want to be clear. We want to be, and that's the clarity around the, you know, epistemic and ways of knowing that no concept and verbal language aren't the only ways of knowing non-conceptual and non-verbal are also very valid ways ways of knowing the world um so i i would say most concisely that's it for young you know the ego is something that we definitely want to um I don't want to say let go of because for him, the ego was really important in order for consciousness, but for the ego to have the relationship to the collective unconscious is so vitally important in his work. So in other words, you don't want to be very bound inside your ego mm -hmm. for him. You would never want to dismantle it totally, mm -hmm. but you want that fluidity of that dialogue between the collective unconscious and what the ego knows what the ego does um, create theories or concepts around. I mean, again, Jung dances right around where Patanjali mm -hmm. ends up going very strongly. And um, yeah, so he's, he's definitely concerned about an overly bound egoic consciousness. There's no doubt about that. For Patanjali, the whole idea of this separate I, you can deconstruct it fully and completely because again as you keep deconstructing it you understand that you are property you are mother mm -hmm. nature you're coming forward as we're talking about earth water fire air it's like mm -hmm. you're made of these elements so to to grasp onto i am consciousness is a fundamental error within Patanjali's system of thought. You never want to take ownership of consciousness because mm. consciousness mm -hmm. is all there is. So mm -hmm. from the finest, most subtle aspects of property coming forward through the earth, water, fire, air, you would never want to take ownership of that because that's what you're composed of. Um, so the fundamental error is one of them it, it is that to take mm. ownership of it. So Patanjali would say, you definitely need a functional organizing principle. There's no doubt about it. Being able to discern is a critical part of the yogic path. Mm. You just don't take ownership of it. Yeah. Don't say the ego is the thing that's conscious. Yeah. And again, this can be where, why it gets very, very tricky to have these conversations because we don't have a definition of consciousness or we don't make this discernment where some people use pure awareness, some people use pure consciousness. Yeah. So it gets very tricky because there's not, you know, cohesion across yeah. disciplines, what language to use. But 
but that's the way that I would say it is that Patanjali saying, do, do not take ownership of it because the moment you try to steal it in any way or be greedy around it, no matter what it is that you're doing, now you're going to move yourself towards that edge of the window and towards Mm -hmm. something that will cause suffering to, um, you know, one of my clients one time said, it's like almost getting whacked with a two by four that the universe will Mm. just come along and just be like, Hey, hold on. Yeah. To try to put you, to get you back inside that window of tolerance and, and, and aim you towards that comfortable seat, you know, Suffering doesn't happen to us. It happens for us. And Mm -hmm. if we can really, really understand that this is just messages, just as if a child was to put their finger in the fire, it's Mm -hmm. the message. No, no, that will burn you. And it's the same with suffering. No, you've gone too far to the right. You've gone too far to the left, whatever it is. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And and I, I feel that people can get a lot of inspiration from that. And that's something that Young and Patanjali do well. I think they they encourage the curiosity to embrace suffering. And maybe it's that Patanjali gives a model that that goes all the way through, all the way through the suffering into that stillness, into that that um, awareness behind it, the place that is is not tarnished at all, and is and is pure in the sense of um, as you described earlier. Um, I, I like this uh, the, the, this image because as you talk, I have also the, the symbols in my own mind, the images that, that form from that. This understanding, like this is something that I've struggled with. And I know you mentioned the three gunas and like the kind of qualities of, of nature. I feel that a lot of people, when they, they start on a spiritual path, and you also you also talk to this very well, and and it was really helpful for me the the way that you described it. A lot of the time we talk of self transcendence or transcending nature, and what you talk to, and and I feel this this surfaces in what you share is, well, if everything is one, then material is is also different. It's like consciousness in in another form, and it's our relationship to that that has to change right not right <laughs> yes that's right <clears throat> you just nailed it that's that's 100% right it's relationship it's such a beautiful way to say it and that's why there can be no spiritual bypass it ends up being finer and finer levels of relationship right and also when i say it doesn't happen to you it happens for you and again so for us meaning as a Yes, individual. Yes, as family. Yes, as culture. And that's why, you know, the clearer you see these things, or we all see these things, it's like, um, you know, culture wars or race, racism or anything like that, it becomes so absurd. And why then you take a stronger stand for the cultural pieces that are just completely so out of alignment. And then you walk more strongly with all brothers and sisters to, to get the culture to clean up and and see where it's um, going down a path towards causing certain people to suffer more than others, et cetera. Yeah. So relationship, you nailed it there. It's so, it's so yeah. 
Uh, I, every time you, you talk, I have like a, in my mind a list of 10 different questions and I have to select like which one. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, what do I want to select from this? Because shadow work, of course, comes up. Um, let's, let's go with that because I've, I've, I've introduced it. It's part of the, the cultural, I, I would say, like, uh, most people, at least if they have even a vague interest in self-development, they're familiar with shadow work. This idea of, that Jung presents of un- uncovering the parts of the unconscious, or at least that specific um, repressed part of, of the unconscious. That's very distinct between Patanjali and Jung um, from, from what you say. I'm wondering if you could talk to the idea of shadow work and how you view it and how you view it through the lens of Patanjali. Because I think that's so important as someone who, who's interested in the spiritual path and shadow work, how, how that deviates from the language and the theory that Jung would have used, because I feel there's an overlap here as well with understanding. Right, sure. And now shadow work is a term that's in keeping, again, with Jung's system of thought that um, the consciousness is in the ego and then everything else goes dark. Um, One way I like to look at this is to say the West overall their consciousness is akin to like the moon. It's more of what you're reflecting on. Whereas again, but so potentially doesn't use the term shadow because to him, again, everything's consciousness or light. Let's just, mm-hmm. let's just try mm-hmm. to keep with our metaphors here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but so potentially speaks, he has this term of vidya. So vidya is wisdom of vidya is non-wisdom. And that's for him, the key coloring of the minds is this idea that, in, in wisdom in that system of thought is also seeing it has to do with pure consciousness, which is pure perception. So if something is not being perceived by me or being inaccurately perceived by me, then that's going to, that's where avidya is. That's the misunderstanding. So unraveling where those misunderstandings are is Patanjali's version of shadow work. Mm-hmm. It's, it has to do with those kleshas, the colorings of the mind. So avidya is, is the first uh, klesha that he speaks to, and then he speaks to this asmita, this idea of an eye that's holding on to its, uh, itself as a separate eye, which then forms attachments and aversions, and then the desire for continuity. So Patanjali's work absolutely delves into that which we do not know he just doesn't call it shadow work because again in his eye in his system of thought you you can never go ontologically the reality of being can never go unconscious so it's a shadow in the sense that through my misperception i'm binding it into seeing that it's not consciousness itself is that is that Make sense? Yeah. Right? The, the mind, through its misperception, binds it. So for Jung, again, the system of thought is very different. The, the ego is the center of consciousness. And so anything that isn't related to an ego falls into the category of the unconscious. And for him, it's bringing that phenomena from the personal unconscious, the collective unconscious, it, to be reflected on and seen mm-hmm. by and understood by the ego, then one folds it in and integrates it towards wholeness. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, the language is different, but it's really, 
similar work. Yeah. You, you see how different the language is because of Patanjali's use of the word consciousness and Young's. Yeah. But they are both encouraging us to do the very same work, which is what are you unaware of? What are you misperceiving? How mm. are you binding? How is that bound in the psyche? So you brought up the term samskaras a, mm. a while ago, those imprints. Jung uses a term called complexes, mm-hmm. which are um, thoughts and emotions all centered around a common theme in, in the psyche, which is... A, a point where the the psyche suffers, mm-hmm. and affect is an empirical mean to, means to enter inside that complex. And potentially doesn't have the term complex, but he does point to samskaras, which are these imprints and these binds. And affect for potentially is also associated with these binds. So again, in both systems of thought, the practices are different. Some of them are similar. Patanjali speaks to dream tending too. Mm-hmm. Um, so the approaches might be a little bit different into how to get that material to show itself to you. But ultimately, I would say both scholars are are pointing to what is that material? You want insight into it. You want to see it. You want to unbind it. And you want to integrate it. And it's very crucial to both paths yeah. that the, that um anything that's gonna be an imprint so potentially uses samskaras and vasanas together samskara is the imprint vasana is the habit pattern of the mind and um this is something you also pointed to earlier those imprints and those habit patterns create these silos of thought that then it just becomes this constructed silo and it's just this big echo chamber. And all I'm hearing is what's inside my imprints and my habit patterns. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's the thing Like when you have a contrast, you, you see like, it's so strange. It's so strange that I have moments where because of, of my level of awareness to my own inner processes, it's almost like I can sense the neural networks that go live and how they, how all these different dots uh, dots join up, and if I'm aware, I can see it and I can talk to it. But if if it's with a usually if it's with a felt experience, and I think Young and Patanjali both talk to this, um, a complex or an imprint is going to have an effect on the body as well. That's I struggle with that more than than I, I think I probably spent more time with mental. Uh, models in in the beginning of my like healing and awakening journey and and find working with the body a bit bit more difficult and that's been something I've worked with more recently I want to try and conceptualize the image that I have which is and I use a phrase to kind of point to it which is um, where is the unconscious like right now if I was just to use arbitrary terms and I was thinking of Jung's terminology, when I'm not, when I'm present and, and when I'm not triggered by, by something in, in my environment, where is the unconscious? So that's, that's something I want to point to and look at, is it going back to this idea of reality and our inner world and, and the fact that they're, they're intertwined almost constantly pointing out as a message this is this is the point of of bondage this is the point where you're attached and there's suffering so you're being presented with that is it that 
it, it's almost as if we're presented with those opportunities to, to free ourselves from suffering. And they alive in the moments when that lesson is there to be learned, or are they always there? Like, are they always there on some level? Uh, um, does that make sense? <laughs> I'm not sure if that if that makes sense. What I'm pointing to. Uh, do they show up again once they're integrated? Like, so if if I I, I feel like I've heard what you said, either. Let's just say, let's be maybe a little bit more specific that I get nervous or afraid or I have anxiety or I shake or I'm intimidated by meeting a president or I don't mm. know, some famous person or I feel afraid of talking to a homeless person. Like, yeah, those are showing us again outside the window of tolerance. Like, I feel uncomfortable in these positions because. Mm. And again, now we're going to talk in these generalities. And again, the sound yeah. bites are just so hard because um, that's why I work one-on-one -on -one with people. Yeah. Because it's much easier to, to me. Mm. Um, so where, I, I, I heard the initial question, where is the unconscious? But I'm not so sure I understood the second part of it. Like, are they always there? Yeah, as we, I'm not explaining, I've not explained it very well. I think what I'm pointing to is with the the shadow elements obviously depth psychology the idea of the unconscious is stuff that we're just not aware of that if we don't become aware and we start doing the work that can run our lives we can be at the mercy of the unconscious as young points to in patanjali as well with that that awareness suffering will be present we act on autopilot we react we, we might live out certain patterns of, of behavior. There has to be an integration process it, in, for both, for Jung and Patanjali, there's like a, a, an integration. But is it that, um, I guess one thing I'm looking at is, is it that you will always have a shadow? Like, is it that there's always an unconscious element of being? Because when I, when I know that I'm really constricted, re like really constricted and I can feel that, and I know, I know Jung says as well, like a lot of people with complexes, after the moment they'll say, oh, I wasn't acting like myself. It's like a, a, a psychic force takes over and they act, act um, outside of character. And I'm just wondering, like, Say for me that where I am at, there are certain things in my reality now that, that are presenting, especially in my relationship, areas that I'm triggered, kind of things that resurface with less tenacity. So I know that there's integrations occurred, but not full integration. How could you discern like how, how much of the shadow has been integrated using the wisdom of both? Is that a better way of framing it? I don't, I'm still not entirely sure I've articulated that well, but I I feel like both systems of of thought are are going to be different for young. Yes, it's like what we talked about at the beginning. Suffering always remains, so the shadow is always there. And the moment that you say the shadow isn't there, now you're going to put more phenomena into the shadow. Right. Right. It's, yeah. This, it's, yeah. Right. Because again, everything's going to be related to the in ego and, and the moment that it's not, uh, then it becomes unconscious content. Yeah. That's that again, will make the radical difference between both systems of thought. Patanjali is saying it's all consciousness. 
you can absolutely take a comfortable seat in the body beyond the dualities. And do you see how Jung continues to set up a duality? Yeah, it's like a never-ending. He never, never resolves. Yeah. Yes, he never yeah. resolves the duality. Patanjali is different. He says he resolves the duality. Sure, there's polarity. There's a north and south pole. Again, now we're back to gravity. Mm. You're going to absolutely sit inside of Mother Nature as she rolls. You will never gain more power than Mother Nature herself. Mm. You can you cannot. However, you can take a comfortable seat inside as you continue to not vision it as shadow, but vision it as the binds of the mind. And as you as you take a more and more comfortable seat fearlessly and the power of pure consciousness has no alternative, but to sit inside itself. It's that it's like, it's, it's ultimately a really different way of of looking at the world. To me, that's the universalizing potential of yoga and Mm. where yoga ends up being a stronger psychology towards healing Again, we're gonna, we would go back to that argument of having to trust and believe and not have doubt. But just given my own set of circumstances, I can really see what he's saying. Yeah. And um, I find it, yeah, to be stronger in the end, a stronger psychology. Yeah. That we, we are in no way outside of nature. We're it. And nature yes. seeks to optimize itself. It, 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 it knows that's maybe, you know, what we could discuss as the archetypal element, but whatever that imprint is, it knows it's optimal tomato. It knows it's <laughs> optimal horse. It knows it's, it knows how to optimize a human being. Yeah. And that's again, what Patanjali is saying, still, still the mind unbind those concepts that you had, take a comfortable seat in the body, let pure consciousness show itself and then move. He's not saying don't stop thinking overall. Yeah. He's saying put your thoughts in accord with the wholeness and the totality of what is while taking a comfortable seat in the body. And then, I mean, his book ends, right? He doesn't, <laughs> his book, which is the beauty of it too. Yeah. He doesn't tell you what happens after. Because yeah. how's he supposed to know? He's yeah. just like saying, get to the place of healing. Go yoga, sit in yoga. Okay. And then he's not going to tell you what's up after that. Yeah. (laughs) Which I I think really helps to, to counter this, this innate desire to conceptualize and become attached, even coming, becoming attached to like the idea of enlightenment or the idea of being fully healed and, and all these ways that they just, you know, something that's been on my mind recently is how quickly we can conceptualize. And when I say we, I, I mean, I, like within a, an instant, within an instant, if someone gives me a compliment, boom, I could conceptualize it, it becomes part of my identity. It doesn't because I have the awareness, but I can see the mechanism in me. And I feel that what you talk to is important. And the fact that there's nothing to attain, but we have to get out of the way. It makes me, it makes it, because I, I don't necessarily want to go too too far down this route, but it makes me think of, have we gone awry? Like, are we, and we clearly have on many levels <laughs> in modern living, but I wonder if at one point we were our true nature. You know, at one point we didn't have to work through because we were. Um, people would argue around like, would we have been more animalistic or, or um, 
not as civil and, and, and kind of look at it in that way. But I wonder, you know, even in like ancient Egypt and, and kind of past intelligent civilizations, if there was more connection to our true form and, and if the suffering is God's way of saying something's gone wrong, you've got to kind of align to, to Atman, to, to your true nature and see that connection. I think if you look at the pyramids of Giza and you you see that they are astrologically aligned or astronomically, like they are the way that they're placed and how long they've survived. And yeah. they're still not even 100% clear on the dates, right? Mm. Versus the World Trade Center. Mm. I'm not so sure a stronger message mm. of whether we've gone awry or not. Mm. We are fighting over money. We have and resources. You know, we fell trees in order to make dollar bills. Yeah. You, you know, um, or pounds, or you know, whatever currency around the world. So the value has become so abstract. Yeah, we we use the vitality of human beings in a cog in the wheel of of, of capitalism. The value of life, the meaning that's inherent. This mm. is it's, it, it's life. It's life force. You will not rob her of yeah. her power. Yeah. You will destroy yourself first. Yeah, that's the great equalizer. It's and again that that's where to be able to interpret where we're going awry. No, do not don't take the vitality out of life force and then make it something abstract when in an iPhone or anything mm. in, in the, in capitalism, right. Yeah. That the value of the earth itself or fire yeah. or clean water, you can't destroy your habitat. You'll be gone. So I, I think the messages are, are in those kind of comparisons yeah. to whether we've gone awry or not. And, and linking back to when we spoke of symbols in real life, I feel like the re like so many things in modern living that they, they symbolize uh, what I think Ken Wilber would call like Atman. The objects themselves, like our approach is is um, what Wilber would describe as like Atman projects. It's the way that we look to, and even even language like we look to the external is kind of redundant, right? But we externalize. We see a symbol that is promising us joy. Is promising us freedom. And somehow, egoically, we're attempting to find like what Jung would call the religious impulse, that like we're attempting to reconnect with ourselves, but through these external symbols that are, are driven by agenda and are driven by a, a minimization or a complete erasure of our true nature, which conflicts with said agenda. Uh, not to get too conspiratorial with it, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, 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 and, and that's Patanjali's message is taking about taking a comfortable seat in true nature and then revisioning. So, we really we want to take the silos down back into the plane of possibilities, yeah, right? We got to realize what the silos are, deconstruct them, get down into the plane, back to the plane of possibilities, mm -hmm. and then. You know, and again, potentially ends his book at resting in true nature. 
But, you know, once we do that on an individual level or a cultural level, but it's then moving forward so that alignment stays place, you know, not that you wouldn't teeter a little bit here and there, Mm. but not where you have to fall way outside the window of tolerance into these really rigid or chaotic states of of, of suffering. Mm. I I definitely, again, I, I definitely see it as, as possibility, you know, but the culture at large, the Euro-American culture at large has to continue to gain understanding of mind and consciousness and emotions. Yeah. And they have to have, we have to have the right framework. Yoga has a very holistic, consistent, logically, logically consistent, yeah. theoretical and practical base mm-hmm. called over hundreds of thousands of years. We have nothing that, you know, even comes close to it. Mm-hmm. And if our empirical science even hopes to, to get us close to it, it has to remove itself out of capitalism. Yeah. The biopharmaceutical oh, yeah. model cannot play, <clears throat> you know, that, yeah. you know, brain-based suffering, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can't play into capitalism. And I feel the Western Academy really ought to let pure consciousness have a seat at the table and, and di- have a, di- a stronger dialogue yeah. with, with the more dualistic frame. I'm I'm seeing this. I, I'm really fortunate to to be involved in certain groups um, uh, with the in the West. Uh, well, actually, you know, across the world, there's there are a few different networks at the moment in science that are looking at consciousness being primary. And there's a Gal- Galileo Commission. Um, David Lorimer was a guest on the podcast, and he's trying to shift the paradigm of science. And for whatever reason, I say whatever reason, I know exactly why. Um, I feel drawn to that because a lot of my suffering when I was younger and a lot of my disenchantment was because how heavily I internalized the Western materialistic worldview in a way that then caused me to deny, suppress any phenomena outside the conventional. Um, and and there, I, I could go into like young psychological functions and feeling and sensing. I'm conscious of time. Um, do you have a little bit longer or, or if you, because I think we're close to the, to the 90 minutes. So I got time for one more question. Yeah, sure. We can go to the 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah is, is that okay? Um, so I, I guess really what I, what I would like to, to end with is to explore. I mean, I've got the word holographic written down and I feel like, <laughs> I feel like maybe that, that, that might need more unpacking. Um, to bring to bring things to a close, I would like to explore, and this is something I, I've I've really I feel drawn to, it and um, which is why I admire your your work so much and, and what you've presented. How do we synthesize? And again, it, it's not straightforward, but how do you synthesize Patanjali's wisdom and Young's wisdom in a way that will allow us to heal, allow us to avoid? spiritual bypassing allow us to work with our psychology whilst moving towards pure consciousness how would you i would say well i would say right now the best that we have is through the avenue that you were talking about with the the shadow work or unbinding unraveling the complexes i'd rather i I guess maybe say it that way potentially Mm -hmm. look at the samskaras Jung's look at the complexes 
Um, I think we have to kind of leave it right there for now. And that, that, that's enough mm. that if we each are willing to do that work um, of seeing where the positive and negative affects code for and what binds in, in, we have, um, you know, for sure, Jung was pointing towards nature. You know, he often spoke in terms of masculine and feminine. But so Mother Nature, just giving her just a feminine tone. I mean, he was definitely pointing towards Mother Nature. So, again, the unraveling of what Patanjali would consider the samskaras and the vasanas or Jung, the complexes, with this aim of the alleviation of suffering and mm-hmm. Mother, you know, heading towards... Um, uh, a, a stronger relationship to mother nature ideas of synchronicity i think that the, that's the best we can get at the moment yeah. because ultimately the other differences that we've brought to light today um are too great and, and do set them both on different paths and different directions but but the merging happens beautifully right there yeah and, and i i that really strikes a chord with me as well this idea of of doing the best that we can at the moment and, and going back to enchantment and, and synchronicity and dream work. I feel like these are avenues that feel more accessible to a Western, a, a typically um, Western mind that understanding the intelligence of the psyche and, and uh, pure consciousness that if that, if that work is done earnestly, healing will take place and, people will shift and people will um, experience reality in a different way. Or at least I guess the starting point is to experience suffering in in a different way and to maybe um, learn to embrace it and learn to to have faith and and surrender to to something greater than ourselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if I could just mention, you know, one thing I I'm really strong believer in like morning practices. Mm -hmm. So to, to wake up in the morning and, you know, gratitude can be hard if somebody's really, really struggling. Um, but the research at heart math shows, Mm -hmm. you know, the coherence of, uh, of the heart and the, you know, the, and gosh, there are so many places we could go. Polyvagal <laughs> theory. I mean, because there's so much information coming up from the body into the mind. And yeah. that that material needs to get more and more in the public domain, right? Yeah. 80% of the material from the body is going up into the brain. <clears throat> and, and, and so in the morning to just, if it can be five minutes, doesn't even have to be that long. But to take a beat, to be with oneself and have gratitude for one's breath and to create uh, the sacred space and intend the day, see who it is that you're going to connect with, the shopkeeper, your animals, your, you know, your family members, and just really sit and, and visualize coherence of your own heart and then a heart connection with other people. I think just simple practices like that will will help us enormously little bit but again it's bit by bit by bit by yeah. bit and it, it 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 brings you back to to what you say about the difference in the the body or the volume of work between Patanjali and Young and I, I feel that the solution or, or the the quote-unquote destination is actually very simple but we've created so much complexity and and you mentioned earlier Young as if he was in a jungle and I feel like we've created this jungle of concepts and, and beliefs that we have to 
work with to arrive at that simplicity and to arrive at the connection to the heart, I think is such a beautiful um, pointer to these other intelligences outside of the mind that, uh, that seem to be more connected to truth. It seems that the heart and the body are more connected to truth. That's right. I mean, for Patanjali or, you know, that's the whole yogic system of thought, the heart chakra is anahata, which mm-hmm. means the sound that is made when two things are not struck. So it is, it's, it's one of the seats for sure of non-duality. And again, just small little morning practices can, yeah. can help us all start to fold into that field a little bit, by yeah, a little bit, by a little bit. And that, and that, and, and it, it, all you have to do then is connect to that. You don't have to subscribe to a worldview. You don't have to subscribe to, to any belief system, just even, and I guess with people listening, like if there's any hesitation, just try it to connect to the heart, try and su- to surrender and have, have faith in some kind of intelligence, even if it's, it's the unconscious and it fits within a certain framework, but uh, allowing it to be a, a seamless process almost of connection and, and self-connection. Yeah, that's right. And back to your word, relationship really nails it. Yeah. The mind, body, heart, relationship, mm-hmm. connection, and the heart's relationship to all other hearts, yeah. all the hearts of all other sentient beings, or the heart, you know, um, more abstract perhaps, but or metaphorical, but you know, the heart beat of Mother Nature, you know, yeah. Shiva's clock. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wrote an article called "The Earth's Heartbeat" on heart math and on on the electrical impulses. Leanne, you're gonna have to get me to shut up. You're gonna have to get <laughs> like we've got. You have to just go like Ricky, stop talking because I'm, I've now got this thing in mind. But I wrote an article, um, so it's really interesting. You mentioned heart math, but about the like two. I think every minute there are two thousand electrical storms in the atmosphere that pulse at the same frequency, and that frequency um, is the same frequency that when our heartbeats are at that frequency, we feel peace, we feel stillness, we feel compassion, we feel love. And there's so much, there are so many dots that are there to be joined that point to the truth, right? <laughs> I love that. Oh my God, please send the article. <laughs> I was, or, I, I, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go find it or send, oh, that sounds, yeah. I love that. Oh yeah. my God. Um, well, what a yeah. great, then that's just a great note to end on. I mean, that's, that's perfect. And I love that you've, you've segued into the ending as well. So we, we've done that well. <laughs> Leanne, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really, yeah, I just want to thank you personally as well for your work and and for bringing bringing heart into the work that you've done. And I know it to to conceptualize this stuff can be difficult, and you've done it so well, you've done it so eloquently. And I feel that it's been done with a very clear purpose to to help teach and to help people learn how to connect with themselves. So, on behalf of me and and the listeners as well, thank you. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad that we've connected and it's been a rich conversation. I, I do hope your listeners find, you know, uh, some insights here or at least little pieces to work with. And I look forward to connecting at another time down the line for sure. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you.